The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning once again. Uh, you'll notice in your bulletin, uh, in your order of worship, <clears throat> that... Uh, uh, our youth pastor, Andrew, was going to preach uh, this passage, and um, it's a bummer because I was uh, looking forward to what he was uh, going to, to say to us in this passage. I encourage you, maybe this week, if you see him, to reach out and, uh, and ask him. Uh, however, it's a privilege for me to get to uh, open up God's Word for us once again this morning. And we're going to continue with our, um, our look at the seven letters that are written to the churches in Revelation. So we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And so go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word uh, to that, and we'll read that together. This is to the church in Smyrna. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> let me pray. Almighty God, uh, we bow before you. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The one who died but who is raised. So, Father, we bow before you and we ask you this morning that by your Spirit we will have eyes to see and ears to hear this message. Teach us, Lord, about what you have done for us, how you are with us. So, Father, may we see you in your glory as the ascended Son of Man who is with his people even as they suffer. Father, teach us this this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so um, as I uh, was thinking uh, about this passage over the last uh, couple of days, um, <clears throat> I was reminded of a few lines from uh, a poem by Emily Bronte, it's her poem, No Coward Soul is Mine. And maybe some of y'all know that poem. The first stanza goes like this. She says, No coward soul is mine. No trembler in the world's storm-troubled sphere. I see heaven's glories shine. And faith shines equal, arming me from fear. I love that last line, faith shines equal, arming me from fear. 
And that first line, no coward soul is mine. It's so inspiring. But it raises a question, doesn't it? I mean, what is it really that gave her such courage? Courage, presumably, even to face death without fear. And, you know, I think this is a question that all of us really, we often avoid it, but it's, it's what we ought to be grappling with as well. After all, a friend of mine recently reminded me, we're all terminal. We're just moving at different paces. And so I ask you, how are you thinking about death? How are you thinking about the role of fear and courage in, the life, in your life as a disciple of Christ? Will you have courage? How do I get that courage to face even death without fear? Well, I think the Lord Jesus in this message to the church in Smyrna, he has an answer to this question. And, and so what did he have to say to the Smyrnans? What did they need to hear? And remember, as I brought out last week, these letters are to all of us. Yes, they're addressed to individual churches, but the Lord is addressing his church in general as well. So what do we need to hear as we read this letter to Smyrna? Well, let me begin by giving us a bit of background to the church in Smyrna. So you'll, you'll notice, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that in John's letter writing, he, begun, he began in Ephesus, and now he's traveling northeasterly. He's making kind of a northeasterly circuitous route. And what he's doing is he's hitting the cities that comprise the seven postal districts in, in Asia at that time. And Smyrna is about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Today, it's the modern city of Izmir, which is the third largest city in Turkey. And the first, first uh, century historian Strabo, he tells us some interesting things about Smyrna at this time. It was known for its architectural beauty, especially its temples and its shrines that, that peppered the city, uh, shrines to the Roman gods and goddesses like Zeus and Bacchus. It was also known for its wealth and its wine, and in the Roman period, it vied with cities like Ephesus and Pergamum to be known as the first city of Asia. And according to another first century historian, Tacitus, there were seven cities that competed for the right to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius in AD 29. And Smyrna won that contest. And so they were given the honor of being known as the temple warden and so Smyrna was an exceptionally affluent, deeply religious, and fiercely loyal Roman city. But as we'll see, and as we already have seen as we've read this letter, the Christians weren't sharing in this affluence, nor were they participating in the city's idolatrous practices. And because of that, they were suffering. And the Lord Jesus had a tailor-made message for, the, for them in the midst of their suffering. And so just like we talked about last week, in verse 8, we hear the Lord Jesus address them through his angel. And then immediately he gives a self-description. 
And you'll remember from last week that these self-descriptions, they're drawn from that glorious vision of the Son of Man that John has just received uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 in Revelation. These self-descriptions, they frame these letters. They're meant to provide comfort. They're meant to fix our eyes and ears on essential truths about Jesus that we need to hear given a particular situation so that we can have hope to conquer and receive the blessing that he provides at the end of each of these letters. So how does Jesus describe himself here to the Smyrnians? Well, he says in verse two, uh, verse 8, he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I want us to focus particularly on the fact that he calls himself the first and the last. You see, not only is this an obvious claim to deity, kind of like the father identifying himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last characters of the Greek alphabet. He does this in Revelation 1.8. Jesus says he's the first and the last. These things are synonymous. It's a claim to deity, but it's more than that. You see, this self-description is meant to remind his suffering people that he's their redeemer and that they have nothing to fear. And I don't think this would have been lost on the Smyrnian Christians. You see, the phrase first and last, this is a description of God that is taken from Isaiah chapter 44, which is part of Isaiah's so-called book of comfort, which begins in Isaiah 40 verse 1 with those amazing, breathtaking word to his people with an astounding and unexpected word of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. And notice what he says just a few chapters later, later in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. He says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Fear not, nor be afraid. You see, here the Lord compassionately reminds his people who are facing exile that he's the one true God, that he's their God. He reminds them of his covenantal commitment to them and that they have absolutely nothing to fear. And so here in the opening verse of our passage this morning... We hear Jesus, the risen and ascended Son of Man. We hear him claim this title for himself. And he says to the people in Smyrna who are facing persecution, who are suffering, he says, I am the first and the last. It's as if he's saying to them, dear children, look at who's talking to you. I'm the one who knows all that you're facing and all you ever will face. In fact, I'm, I've got it all under control. And I know it's difficult to face. But remember, I am your Redeemer. Fix your eyes upon me and be comforted. And it's in the wake of this astounding self-description that the Lord in verse 9 begins to address the church in Smyrna. And like his address to the church in Ephesus, we hear him begin with that phrase that intimates his, uh, that underscores his intimate knowledge. He says, I know. And so we hear him say in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. But you know, I want you to notice that unlike his message to the Ephesians, he doesn't praise the works of the Smyrnian Christians. Instead, he lets them know that he's aware of their situation. He knows that they're being afflicted. That's really just the meaning of the word tribulation there. He knows that they're suffering economic hardship. He knows that they're being slandered. And all at the instigation of these false Jews. So what's going on here? What did he know? What were the Smyrnian Christians facing? We need to keep a couple of things in mind here. You see, at this time in Smyrna, there was a significant Jewish population. And you may or may not know this about the Jews in the first century in Rome, but the Jews, they enjoyed a a certain religiously privileged status in Roman society. You see, unlike Roman citizens, the Jews weren't required to participate in the emperor cult. Everyone else was expected to make sacrifices at various times throughout the year in honor of the Caesars as gods. In fact, city officials would actually distribute tax monies to the poorer classes in order to ensure broad participation in the cult. But the Jews didn't have to do this. And it's likely that the Christians in Smyrna who were refusing to participate, to practice this idolatry, refusing to bow down before the emperor, before the Caesars as gods, because of their belief in the one true God. It's likely that they were hoping to enjoy this same religious exemption, you can call it. And on the one hand, I think this is entirely reasonable. You see, after all, the early Christians, they saw themselves as the true Israel. As disciples of the Jewish scriptures and followers of the long-expected Jewish Messiah. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he ends his book of Galatians by calling his readers the Israel of God. And so I think it was entirely reasonable that they would expect this, but this infuriated the Jews. They didn't want to be associated with them. And they didn't want to share this religious exemption. You see, the Jews in the first century, they despised the early Christians. They thought they were blasphemers who worshipped a cursed criminal on a tree. And their animosity toward the Christians can be traced throughout the book of Acts. And so here in Smyrna, as opportunity arose... It seems that the Jews were ratting out the Christians to the Roman officials. They were slandering them as disturbers of the peace, as unruly citizens, because of their refusal to participate in the city's idolatrous practices. And in fact, you can read about a very similar incident that happened to Paul and Barnabas in Iconium in Acts 14, 1-7. And friends, inasmuch as their slanderous accusations stuck, the consequences for the Christians in Smyrna would have been severe. You see, they would have been facing limited economic opportunities and financial hardship. They would have been ostracized. They'd face social alienation. And they most likely would have faced punishment by the authorities, which included exile, imprisonment, and even capital punishment. Friends, this is what our brothers and sisters in Smyrna were facing. And Jesus was aware of it. And so he says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation. 
and your poverty and the slander you're enduring at these so-called Jews. And yet it's important, I think, for us to, to, to see that here he doesn't merely communicate his awareness of the situation. He reorients their perspective to what is really true and what is really important. He tells them that though they're poor by worldly standards, they're rich. He assures them that though they stand accused, they are in fact in the right. And it's their accusers who are in the wrong. In fact, their accusers are a synagogue of Satan in league with the chief false accuser himself, the devil. It's almost as if here the Lord is aware that that their vision might be growing cloudy in the midst of their suffering. And so he gently reminds them that their belief in him as the long-expected Messiah and as the Savior of sinners and as the one true God against all other idols, even Roman emperors, and their opposition to all that idolatry, this is what really matters. In fact, it's the chief hallmark of those who would be numbered among God's people of those who would not be Jews merely outwardly, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.28, but inwardly by the circumcision of the heart that comes through faith in him. Friends, he reorients their perspective to what is actually true and important. And you know, it's significant that he doesn't rebuke them, unlike what he did to the Ephesians in the previous letter. He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he commends his impoverished and persecuted brothers and sisters for their faithfulness to him. And he draws their attention back onto the everlasting riches that are theirs, even now, saying to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the suffering Christians in Smyrna needed to hear. You know, I think it it perhaps might be difficult for us who share in the affluence and the religious protection that our country currently provides us, it might be difficult for us to identify with what they were dealing with. But, you know, I think this message is something that you and I need to hear as well. Because if we're walking in step with the Spirit, we are going to face persecution we are going to face pressures. You see, when, when we face pressure, things like pressure at work, to conform to practices we know the Lord opposes, when we experience financial loss because we want to be directed by Him rather than by the almighty dollar or any other worldly concern. Friends, when we suffer and face gossip, exclusion, even bullying, by our so-called friends because we refuse to participate in things we know would bring the Lord dishonor and cause pain to those who are made in his image. Friends, when we experience all of these things and many others for the sake of Christ, I think it's easy for us, I think it's easy for our own vision to become cloudy. It's easy for us to lose sight of what is true and what really matters because we get hyper-focused on what's immediately in front of us. And it's in these situations, like the Smyrnians, we need to be reminded once again 
that we who have put our faith in Jesus alone are not alone, but we are beloved members of his family. We're not imposters relying on God's favor merely because of our heritage while we reject his Messiah like the false Jews in this passage. Instead, we're true sons of Abraham, adopted into his family by the Lord's grace, and we are inheritors of all the riches that come along with that. And friends, in light of this truth, when we face these things, we need to have our eyes drawn back onto the, onto the inestimable riches that are found only in Christ, so that in the, in the midst of any impoverishment and any suffering that we might face, our confidence and joy in the Lord might actually abound, just like Paul's did, who said as he recounted his own repeated sufferings for the sake of Christ in 2 Corinthians 6.10, that though he had nothing, he possessed everything. In the wake of this, as the Lord continues his address to the Smyrnians, we hear him begin to exhort them. And he says to them in Revelation 2, verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer, but be faithful unto death. You see, here the Lord, the ascended Son of Man, the first and the last, the one who knows the end from the beginning, the Lord knows that although his brothers and sisters, all of them in Smyrna, are suffering for his sake, some of them will be called to pay the ultimate price. And in his compassion, he wants them to be prepared to face the challenge faithfully. And he wants them to be able to go into it with eyes wide open. And so in order to orient them to the trials that lie ahead, he grabs their attention. And he says to them, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. There are just a few things I want us to notice about what he says here. First, although there's probably an allusion here to the testing of Daniel and his friends in the phrase 10 days, I don't want, to get, I don't want us to get hung up on that right now. If you're interested, you can ask me later. I think what's most immediately important for us is to recognize that the Lord in his infinite knowledge of the past present, and future. He graciously shares with his people that their suffering is only temporary. Their suffering will be temporary. There is an end in sight. And in this way, he provides comfort, much-needed comfort. And secondly, I want you to notice that the worldly opposition and affliction we face as Christians, for the sake of the Lord, this really does have a satanic background. Notice that he says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This puts a fine point on what he said earlier when he called the slanderers of the, Christian, of the Christians in Smyrna. He called them a synagogue of Satan. You see, in their affliction of the Christians, these false Jews were in fact, they were playing a role in the devil's ranks and setting themselves up in opposition to the people and purposes of the one true God. And friends, we too need to be reminded here that here and now we're engaged in a spiritual battle. 
as disciples of the Lord Jesus. This battle is waged over the hearts of men and women. And its focal point is our response to Christ. Will we recognize him for who he is? The Messiah of God and Savior of sinners. And will we come to him? Will we reject all false gods and idols? And be loyal to him alone? Will we fix our eyes upon him and submit to his leading? Even in the darkest of circumstances, no matter the cost. Friends, this is the battle we're engaged in. And the stakes are high. You see, failure to put our confidence in the Lord alone provides us with no hope against the ultimate judgment and wrath of God that is coming against sinners, which Jesus calls at the end of this letter the second death. And the stakes are high. They are, they are high, and the Apostle Paul understood this. You recall that famous passage in Ephesians 6. We hear him exhort his brothers and sisters in, in Ephesus, saying to them, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, finally I want you to notice and take comfort in the fact that our suffering has a divine purpose. Notice that Jesus says to the Smyrnians that some might be thrown into prison, that you may be tested. You see, despite appearances, our suffering isn't arbitrary, but it has a purpose in the infinite wisdom and design of God. Through the trials we face, even those that call us to make the ultimate sacrifice, friends, the Lord desires to refine you and bless you beyond measure. This is why we hear him say to the Smyrnians, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The Apostle Paul grasped this and in the midst of all of his suffering, it was his only hope. And this is why we hear him say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And similarly, the Apostle Peter, he had this same hope. And I love what he says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And friends, you know, recognizing that we as God's people are engaged in this battle and are called to suffering and self-sacrifice, we shouldn't just be praying for ourselves and for one another here at CTK that we might be found faithful, although we ought to be praying for that regularly. We also ought to be fervently praying for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are now really experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ to a significantly greater degree than we are. 
perhaps even at the cost of their lives. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray for them fervently. We ought to grieve for them and with them in their suffering. We ought to be supporting them as God enables us. We ought to be lifting them up that they might have endurance in the midst of their trials, that we might rejoice with them in their faithfulness. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, maybe somewhat cynically, that it's easy or even a bit disingenuous for Jesus to call his disciples to suffer here on earth while he's far removed and enthroned in heaven. My friends, let me remind you, this same Jesus is the one that calls you to suffer, but he's the one who was made like us in every respect. He is the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The one who calls you to suffer is the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. More, more than that, let me remind you that the one who calls you to suffer is the one who died and came to life, as he reminds the Smyrnians in the beginning of this letter. And because of his sacrifice on our behalf and because of his victory over death, he's able to offer you and me the crown of life, eternal life, to all who put their trust in him. Indeed, for those of us whose hope is in the Lord, there is absolutely nothing for us to fear on earth, not even death. And with confidence, knowing that, with confidence we can join our voices to the hymnists and say those beautiful lines from the beloved hymn, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Almighty God, O oh Father, we bow before you and we praise you. We honor you. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. O oh Jesus, we honor you as the one who died and who has risen. O oh Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We ask you, Lord, that by your spirit you will make us faithful. That we will not rely on our own strength, but we will rest in your power. Rest in the one who died and is alive and with his people. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.